Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you on this beautiful fall day. Um, I'm excited to introduce to you uh, our speaker this morning. She's been with us actually a couple times over the last few months. Her name is Carrie Latticer. Uh, Carrie is the executive director of the Post-Evangelical Collective. And you may wonder what that is. And really, it's a group of people who are really kind of have this long love affair with Jesus believe that the Bible needs to be a central conversation partner in all the conversations we're having about life and our world, and at the same time recognize that something new is being born, and we want to tend to that and pay attention to that. And Carrie is the one who's leading that now across the country, and we're thrilled to have her here with us this morning. So would you welcome with me our friend, Carrie Latticer. Thank you. Thank you so much for that warm welcome, DCC. It's so good to be with you this morning. Um, I love talking about what's happening at this church and within this community when I speak to other people who are just beginning to sort of have new imagination for what the beloved community can be. So it's a delight for me to be with you. When I first started joining you all, I was coming in from Chicagoland. That's where I have been kind of in the Midwest for more than a decade, about a decade and a half. In my time this summer of getting to visit you, I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. And so I actually get to be a part of one of our kind of sister churches, like Church on Morgan there. And I get to teach there sometimes. And I'm actually partnering with um, the UMC to help them do, like the PEC, the Post-Evangelical Collective, and the UMC helping them do some revitalization work and some reimagination work for the church. Uh, And then I get to do this awesome endeavor called the Post-Evangelical Collective. And really, it started a couple years ago. I got invited to sort of steward this sort of new thing it felt like the Spirit was doing in this space, in the church in North America. I think lots has been revealed in the last few years. Um, Perhaps not new things, but things that were happening under the surface for quite a while in the church. And some friends got together and just started imagining what would it look like if we were to gather some post-evangelical thinking folks uh, in a room. Maybe we could have like a round table conversation. And I was leading some different cohorts and groups of pastors in some of these conversations. My friend Mike was doing the same. And so it was his idea to gather these pastors. And I had started a ministry called New Ground Network. And I did some coaching and consulting work uh, with different churches and denominations there. And every time I did work with an evangelical organization, 
part of the money that they would pay would get stewarded in this sort of post-evangelical space. It's really hard to get funding if you're a more progressive church, and so we would use the resources to help launch like non-traditional church experiments or uh, perhaps affirming church spaces, things like that. So Mike came and said, hey, could you imagine if Newground Network helped underwrite this kind of round table of pastors? And we'll get some people in the room and start dreaming together about the church, sharing resources. It was an immediate yes, because that was what these funds were intended to underwrite, stuff like that. And then we had about 150 people show up to this round table conversation um, in South Bend, Indiana, of all places. And the room was rich, and it was full of people, many of whom had been shattered by their experience in the church. But as Michael said, they were so compelled by the person of Jesus, they just couldn't stop believing for what the redemptive community could be, what the church was intended to be. And so that was almost two years ago. Uh, I kind of formally stepped into a role with some friends. None of us were paid or just volunteering to kind of be a board and help steward and shape what was happening in this post-evangelical space. And then last year, uh, part of that discernment was we decided we should do another gathering and see who would show up and who wants to be a part of this. And Denver Community Church hosted it, and we had like 150 artists and pastors and stakeholders here in this room just about a year ago again, dreaming and imagining what the church could be. And so after that, we really felt like, okay, we should be really faithful stewards of what's happening in this space. And so this group of friends and I decided, what if we sort of formalize this? What if we become a thing, an organization? And we merged Newground Network with the Post-Evangelical Collective and have started a thing now. We have like a formal board and are seeking to really help resource and support and cultivate more faith spaces like yours, Jesus-centered, justice-oriented, fully affirming faith spaces of mutuality and flourishing for all people. So it's been a delight. At most days, I'm like, I can't believe I get to do this work. Like, I can't believe I get to represent what folks like Michael and Justin Morgan and Jason Miller and others have been dreaming about and cultivating for the last couple of years. Um, it's also not a paid job yet. And so it's been a really interesting season to try to step into a role um, and figure out what that looks like. That's a big part of what's in front of me in this role. But I tell you all of that context to say, as we dive into this text, my hope is that anytime a teacher gets up and shares that the text has like sort of worked itself through them before they unpack it with a community, but that has most certainly been the case for me this week. This text and this week have provided opportunities for me to really reflect on what do I actually think? What, what does my life actually exhibit about these very concepts? Our text is coming from Luke chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, and it says, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. So there's this interesting phrase that Jesus uses about the eye being the lamp of the body. And it was a Jewish idiom that actually spoke about generosity. The word healthy in the NIV translation could also refer, or maybe be more rightly coined, generous. Uh, I love how the message version sort of interprets this text. Listen to this one. It says, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a drawer. 
It's put on a lampstand so that those entering the room have light to see where they're going. Your eye is a lamp lighting up your whole body. If you lived wide-eyed in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a musty cellar. Keep your eyes open, your lamp burning, so that you don't get musty and murky. Keep your life as well-lighted as your best-lit room. It's such an interesting turn of phrase, and I think without some ancient context, this passage can be really challenging for us to understand or comprehend what it's trying to communicate here. We can catch one clue to the meaning of this expression that can give us sort of a frame for how to explore this text, and it's found in a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. Jesus has just shared this teaching surrounding a parable about how men who had worked for one hour in a field will be paid the same as those who had worked all day. Because this master who's employing the men is merciful and they had already agreed on the wage in advance, the men who had worked an hour will receive precisely what the men who worked all day received. But those who worked all day grumbled that the men who worked one hour were paid too much. And Jesus responds with words that are similar to this idiom. Jesus says, is your eye bad because I am good? Almost as if saying, is how you view the the situation here stingy because it highlights the master's generosity? Jesus is suggesting that there's something about how we see, something about how we experience generosity that has implications for how we grasp and comprehend the kingdom of God and how our lives sort of fit into the nature of the kingdom of God. As we explore this ancient text, I think that the ancient context actually gives us some really fascinating insights as well. Uh, The first part of this text in Luke 11, the, the lamp and light imagery. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. If we think about the basic fundamental principle or purpose, the the most basic function of an actual light, right? Like an actual light bulb or a candle or in this case, an oil lamp, light exists to illuminate. Light exists to help us to see reality. Light exists to help us to perceive, to see more clearly than we can on our own. It's so fascinating to me that the actual purpose of light has nothing to do with the light itself. The the purpose of light isn't about the light itself, but rather it's about the thing that it's illuminating. The purpose of light is all about what it is intended to help us see. And he's saying here, we don't hide the light under a bowl. We put it on a stand. We want it to shine. We want it to help us and to help others see. We want the light to illuminate reality for us. Or do we? Perhaps it depends on how we perceive reality ourselves. It it depends on what we imagine we are illuminating. And the next part of this text honestly gets pretty weird without some study of of the eyes, without some study of understanding how the ancient world would have viewed eyes. 
It says your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is full of darkness. And I want to read it again with that word generous instead of healthy. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are generous, your whole body is also, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are not generous, your body is then full of darkness. The eye carried interesting meaning in the ancient culture. I know Michael has shared about this a little bit before, how in ancient culture, there was a lot of ties to how our bodies were perceived and how our physical bodies being perceived was connected to sort of spirituality or merits or the state of one's spiritual condition, right? They imagined that how your physical body presented said something about your inside, said something about the spiritual state or condition of your life almost suggesting that what was happening on the outside was a representation of what was going on on the inside of a person. And this can be quite a prejudiced way of viewing things, right? To add deep meaning to deformities or to issues that people have, to actually restrict access to religious ceremonies because of a physical attribute. This was a common practice in this time, and I dare to think that there are ways that we still do this today. Right, judge the outsides as if they're a representation of the insides. This concept is called physiognomy, and it was common all over ancient thinking. It was a part of what was happening in this idiom. It's helpful for us to understand it, to understand what this text is saying to us. Beyond just the religious community, the culture had the same belief, that the countenance and physical features were a reflection of the internal condition or character, the internal state of a being. And with that in mind, there's this deep-seated connection and the understanding of this relationship between the eye and someone's moral character. There was also a plethora of theories about the eyes, just about the eyes in general, about how they worked or what they could do. Some people believed that the eyes were actual lamps into the body. Some people thought that the eyes were directly linked to the heart as the organ of thought or desire or emotion. It's kind of interesting to think of a wide-eyed little kid like getting ready to walk into Disney World, right? Like you can see all over their face what it is that they're thinking or, or feeling or anticipating in that moment. Unlike our modern understanding, rather than eyes letting light in, the ancient thinking was that they were perceived as active agents that could actually emit something. Like, people thought your eyes would emit rays. Rays are coming out of your eyes. Some tradition believed that the eyes were full of rays of the fire inside. They were a representation of the fire inside. And then there was also this bad eye, evil eye tradition. This is a very common way of thinking about eyes, and they believed that someone could actually make eye contact with you and then cause you to succumb to a curse. That was the power of the eyes in the ancient world. Okay, the squeezing of the eye, like glaring or squinting your eyes was perceived to have a stinging effect on somebody. And I will tell you, I have a teenager, and I kind of believe this one, that a 14-year-old can give you an eye that could kill, right? <laughs> I love my teenager in all of the side eye that she gives me, and usually it's an indicator to me of something that's happening inside of her. 
These ideas may sound ancient and archaic and even superstitious, but what's interesting is modern ways that we understand vision, right? Like neurobiologically or emotionally and spiritually and even psychologically, a lot of these modern ways we understand vision don't sound all that different from the ancient time. My friend Jason, who's one of the most thoughtful and pastoral theologians I know, he's an incredible writer. If you haven't read his book, When the World Breaks, I highly recommend it. And he was explaining to me this idea of the eyes, the modern view. Biologically, eyes more than show us what's around us by the way they see and how they take the world in. The eyes actually have a way of telling us if we should be relaxed or in some sort of state of arousal like fight or flight. There's some evolutionary history, biologically, to how our eyes indicate to our bodies if a situation is safe or not. I mean, think about a homo sapien thousands of years ago walking through the woods, right? Eyes on the horizon, all of the beauty like you have here, taking in the sights and creation and the sky, and then all of a sudden there's a wrestling in the bush and what happens? You take your eyes off of what you see and immediately your body starts attending to a potential threat, right? Your attention goes away from what's in front of you and is readying for some sort of threat. And what we've learned is that our bodies do this. They, they focus in on a thing, they zero in, our bodies switch into fight or flight. And our anxiety raises a little bit and our, our anxiety levels go up, our adrenaline and our cortisol start pumping through our bodies and then we focus in on this very narrow focal point to try to discern. It's actually our nervous systems driven by our eyes and what they're fixated on to see that helps us perceive the world around us. Our nervous system makes us alert and ready to deal with whatever threat comes our way. And so when these things are elevated in our bodies, it makes us way more on our heels, ready to protect ourselves, ready to be defensive, ready to be self-protective. When we focus in on our challenges, we take our eyes off of that horizon, it frames what we see because we begin looking for threats. The act of focusing the function of the eyes has a serious impact on our bodies. It can make us nervous, it can make us anxious, it can get our adrenaline pumping. So biologically, what we see, what we perceive, impacts our bodies. Isn't that fascinating in, line, in light of this text? And it brings to mind for me this phrase, we see things not as they are, but as we are. Has anyone heard this before? We see things not as they are, but as we are. It goes along with the language of projection in sort of the psychological world, right? Which simply means that we project onto the things that are happening around us. We're, we're capable of projecting onto the things around us the things that are happening within us. 
An example might be maybe you're connected to somebody who is like perfectly safe, a, a good person. Their words and their actions align. The way you experience them is consistent. The way that they're acting brings something up in you. Maybe it's a word or an experience or a feeling that comes up and all of a sudden you're remembering your mom or your dad or a really harsh conversation with somebody and now all of a sudden this past experience is getting projected onto this perfectly safe person in front of you. And friends, all of us do this, right? Uh, we can project our woundedness onto the person who is right in front of us, even a, a perfectly safe person who hasn't done anything to hurt you. Does this sound familiar? In relationships, we do this. People rarely see you for who you are. People so often see you for how they are. And I know that all of this information about the ancient world and eyes can sound sort of superstitious or weird or uninformed that the ancients have all these ideas about eyes and light and eyes acting upon the world, but maybe it's not that weird. Maybe they're onto some insights that actually sort of prove out today with science and biology and psychology because you have all of these ideas happening, a lot going on with the eyes. You have vision of incredible importance in this story. You have uh, the evil eye and the good eye and the bad eyes. You have light and darkness. And Jesus brings these ideas together and, and into these ideas about how we view, how we perceive wealth and generosity. Rather than eyes receiving light, the eyes are a lantern, a source of light illuminating what's around us and also what is inside of us. The quality or the nature or the character with which you see is really important in how it shapes what you see. The nature and the character with which you see shapes what you see. What's happening inside of you dictates how you see and how you perceive and what others will see, what your very life illuminates to your neighbors and to your friends and to your family. I think this brings up a really important question for us on this one. When it comes to then generosity, how you understand God's kingdom impacts what you see. What we see is greatly impacted by how we see and perceive God. Perhaps everything that we see is greatly impacted by how we see and perceive God. And the question that I've been wrestling with all week was, do I see God's resources in my very own life as scarce or as abundant? If my perception is rooted in scarcity, family, I will see scarcity everywhere. I will approach this world seeing only threats, looking for the wrestling in the bushes, approaching the world with defensiveness and self-protection, the literal opposite of generosity. Verse 35 says, see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. It matters, family, what we see and how we perceive. And as I was thinking about it just this week, 
about the abundant nature of God that we can see and perceive all over creation. I think we miss this a whole awful lot in our very busy lives, but Richard Rohr talks about how creation is the very first incarnation of God. How we can see and experience the generosity and the reciprocity and the generative nature of who God is at work all around us in nature, in creation itself. When I ask myself what the world around me reveals about who God is, I can't help but notice things like how the ground produces food for our nourishment. How the trees, have you ever thought about this, are literally designed to breathe with us, right? This this reciprocity of this generative nature is baked into creation. Like what we breathe out, the trees breathe in, and what they breathe out is what we breathe in. This is part of the nature and the character of creator God. On the heels of autumn equinox, I'm reminded how seasons work to nurture the land, to provide for us what we need, both rest and harvest. The spring blooms and then seasons and times of wintering. The abundant, generous, generative nature of God is found all around us. This one blew my mind, and please hang with me here because it's a little bit silly. Did you know that there's such a thing called cross-kingdom communication? where insects like ants can live in harmony with trees. Okay, leafcutter ants can use the entire biomass of leaves from a single tree, but they never do because the trees speak to them on how to leave just enough for the tree to fully recover for the next season. The ants and the trees speak to one another. This is a part of our creator's design. The generous and generative nature of our creator is in and around the world around us if we have eyes to see and to perceive it. David Bentley Hart from the Orthodox tradition, he's thought to be one of the most impressive academic theologians in the English-speaking world today. And he has this to say about the creative nature of God. So you heard my like indigenous, you know, hippie, native version of it, but this is what a really smart guy has to say about it. He says, God so understood is not something posed over and against the universe in addition to it, nor is God the universe itself. God is not a being, at least not in the way that a tree, a shoemaker, or a God is a being. God is not one more object in the inventory of all things that are, or any sort of discrete object at all. Rather, all things that exist receive their being continuously from God, who is the infinite wellspring of all that is, in whom, to use the language of the Christian scriptures, all things live and move and have their being. In one sense, God is beyond being. In another sense, God is being itself, in that God is the inexhaustible source of all reality, the absolute upon which the contingent is always utterly dependent. The unity and simplicity that underlies and sustains the diversity of finite and composite things. God is the infinite source of being that denotes existence to every contingent thing and to the universe as a whole, without which nothing, not even the barest possibilities of things, could exist. 
Creation shows us how intimately and intricately our creator cares for even the tiniest of things. And friends, we are not tiny things in the imagination of the creator. It reveals to us how generative and abundant their intentions are for us. It can be found in the tiniest of details in how this world works. I was overwhelmed thinking about it when just this week, I lost a, a huge financial uh, support in what we're doing in the post-evangelical work. I shared this work does not have a salary yet. And so as I stepped into it, it was faith building and faith stretching. And if we're honest, there's also some things that you're gonna depend on, right, as a part of building that future. And one of those fell through for me this week. And my immediate temptation was to pull back, to forget everything I know about God's generosity and how it's baked into our existence and the existence of the world and to go back to scarcity thinking. I wanted to like pull up a budget and reallocate every dollar that's coming in. I'm embarrassed to tell you that every time my kids ask for something this week, a pair of soccer cleats or a drink from Starbucks, I bristled inside and immediately was like, no, nope, it's not in the budget. We're not going to be able to because I had this fear. Immediately, I immediately reverted back to those threats and the defensiveness and this fear that God would not be able to meet our needs. And then I felt this invitation to remember God's generosity in my life, to remember about how when I was 16, I had to leave home and lived in survival mode. I was emancipated at 16. I had to work full time and put myself through school. I got my GED so I could leave home early. I worked. I, I went into the business world. I was never without something to eat. God provided for my needs consistently and overwhelmingly in that season. And then a few years later, I sort of found my way back to God, and I had been in the business world, and I was invited to go take a job at a church, and it was a 70% pay cut. And I remember telling my dad, I think I could live off my savings for like a year and like make this work, and then I'll just kind of see what happens on the other side. And he looked at me like I had lost my ever-loving mind because that's just not how he thinks. But God showed up in that season and met for me and provided for me abundantly. And then in 2008, during the economic downturn, we were living on a single family income and had a very tight budget, and I'm living off of a ministry salary, which you know is dependent on the generosity of people that were a part of this church, and all of a sudden I added a baby into our family budget and all the expenses that go without, and we were never without our needs met. And then a few years after that, I spoke up about injustice at a church and I lost my job. And I was not a day not provided for. And here I am on the edge of a brand new faith-stretching journey, and I'm scared about how or if God is going to be able to provide for me. And I'm pulling back on the generosity in my own life because my survival brain, my threat brain, my defensive brain, my concern was if there was enough. I realized this week that I had allowed my vision, the way I see God, my perception of how things work in the kingdom of God, to become distorted. Rather than keeping my eyes on the horizon, my body had gotten triggered with fear and let scarcity thinking fall in. I was ruminating on all the threats and on all the potential downfalls, all of the what ifs, rather than focusing on the what fors and why we were even doing this in the first place. 
I found myself and my own heart positioning myself to be defensive and protective, not keeping my eyes on the bigger picture, not trusting in the abundant nature of my creator, but literally taking the path that is the opposite of believing in God's generosity. I loved studying this passage and reading Jesus in the context here and thinking about how he may have sounded, because this is a very real practical situation for me, and the words of Jesus can sound a little bit flowery, right? But you think about the ancient context. He is speaking to devout religious leaders and people in the streets hearing his teaching who don't have a place to sleep, don't have food to eat, and there's centurions with like armor on and helmets on. There's such a diverse crowd around Jesus. And he's inviting people to think about the birds of the air and the flowers, right? He's uh, inviting them to not worry or toil for anything. He's like this poet, hippie philosopher, giving people a brand new imagination in the midst of what was right in front of them. And he says things like, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. Or let those who have ears hear. He is consistently trying to give us a brand new perspective on what we see. And in this passage, it's a question of if we will see and perceive the world with generosity or scarcity. What will our lives illuminate For the watching world, will they illuminate this stinginess or this generosity? Will we ourselves give abundantly or give scarcely? If we live, as that message version says, squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, our bodies become a musty cellar. Or if we'll live wide-eyed in wonder and belief, our bodies become full of light. If we keep our eyes open, our lamps burning so we don't get musty and murky, we can keep our lives well lit and our best lighted room begins to illuminate the generosity and the abundance and the generative nature of our good creator with our very lives and our very actions, the very things that we do with what has been entrusted to us. And I think this topic of generosity can be sort of tough to talk about in the church, right? Particularly if you came out of a frame, an evangelical experience that perhaps talked about money in a way that felt manipulative or coercive. I I find particularly in the post-evangelical space, it can be challenging to talk about money. It can be challenging to talk about this idea of generosity because we can go back to those old frames, to those old paradigms, but Jesus speaks about it and is inviting us to be generous, so much so this is something worth paying attention to. Jesus is inviting us time and time again to live this full life, this life filled with light. Jesus is on to something here. And generosity isn't just an idea or a hope or a desire, it's a choice. It's literally a direction, it's a perception, it's a lifestyle for us. Our God is a generous God and our goal as followers, not, not believers but behaviors, is to become like God. Christian Smith, who wrote the book The Paradox of Generosity, Giving We Receive, Grasping We Lose, 
says, rather than leaving generous people on the short end of an unequal bargain, practices of generosity are actually likely instead to provide generous givers with the essential goods in life. Things like happiness and health and purpose, which money and time themselves simply cannot buy. This is an empirical fact worth knowing. The things that we cannot buy come, we receive through generosity. Uh, Tertullian, an African church father, says, nothing that is God's is obtainable by money. Can a new kingdom of God-oriented, generous perspective actually reshape our relationship with our money and with our possessions? I think maybe one of the questions for us is to wrestle with what does owning and earning accomplish in us? What is the safety and security? This was my question this week. What is the safety and security of being able to provide or ultra-independence as a trauma response? What does that provide for me that I cannot trust God for? Christian Smith also says a variety of kinds of practices of generosity are positively and significantly associated with five important good life outcomes. Giving money, volunteering, being relationally generous, being a generous neighbor and friend, and personally valuing the importance of being a generous person, they're all significant. Positively correlated with greater personal happiness, physical health, a stronger sense of purpose in life, avoidance of symptoms of depression, hello, and a greater interest in personal growth. There is an invitation in this idiom for us to reimagine how we understand this idea of generosity, and not just how we understand it, but how we participate, how we engage with it. And I want to propose a practice for you this week. Because see, I'm learning through my own healing journey that we can change our perspectives. Whatever family of origin story you hold about money or generosity or scarcity or abundance, I do not want to invalidate that. That comes from your lived experience. But we can, through practices, change our perspectives, change our, like, rewire our brains and change how our bodies participate and experience the things of God's kingdom. It's incredible how God made us to do this. And so I want to present to you this idea, this, this practice called savoring. And it started for me initially as sort of a, an old Ignatian practice of at the end of the day, spending time with God, just saying, where have you been at work today, God? And I missed it. Where were you inviting me to speak up? Or where should I have stopped talking and just been present with my kids to listen for a few minutes? Where have you been working and how can I just be attentive? Sometimes I would do this practice and I'd have to go back and apologize to a colleague for steamrolling them in a meeting or, or go back to my kids and say, hey, will you tell me that story again so I can really listen? Or go back to a decision that I was concerned about and reevaluate what I had decided. But over time, this Ignatian practice turned into this idea of saying, Savoring. savoring the moments where I experience God's goodness or God's kindness or God's activity in my life. In the mental health world, they kind of call this idea glimmers. And glimmers for your body are the opposite of triggers. And you know what I'm saying when I say triggers, right? Like that moment that something happens and the Hulk rears up inside of you. That's what it feels like for me. And you want to react 
to the person or to the situation in front of you. That is a trigger. A glimmer is a moment that you experience some inbreaking of goodness, some inbreaking of the kingdom of God, some moment that your body is able to deeply exhale. And it could be somebody dropping off a meal for you. It could be a text encouraging you from a friend you haven't heard from in a long time. It could be a hug from somebody, but to take the time to savor, because do you know what we do? We ruminate on the challenges. We ruminate on the things we wish we would have said. We ruminate on the obstacles or the threats, and savoring rewires our brains to recognize the activity of God. And I really perceive on this one that as we practice uh, gratitude, that our generosity will grow, right? When we practice savoring and we see and notice and hold on to, we're attentive to God's activity in our lives, it starts sort of retroactively. You look back and see where God was at work in your day, and then it becomes a different way of calibrating how you move through the world. You're almost on the lookout for these moments, this attentiveness to the Spirit of God and what God wants to do in any moment. And when we calibrate our hearts and our minds to be attentive to the Spirit of God and the generosity of God in our everyday lives, it changes how we can approach generosity. Einstein, of all people, says, a hundred times a day, I remind myself that my inner and outer life depends on the labors of other men, living and dead. And I must exert myself in order to give in the measure as I have received and am still receiving. Could those in our midst who don't have enough have all of their needs met if we learn to live into this way of the kingdom? If each one of us understood the generosity and the generative nature of God and then lived in a similar way, the way that Jesus is inviting us to live here, Savoring will help us notice and over time calibrate our hearts and our imaginations for what God is up to in and through us. Gratitude, noticing, invites us to be generous as our creator is generous. Generous with our presence, generous with our attention, generous with our appreciation, generous with our possessions, generous with our time, generous with our financial resources. Jesus is talking about investing in the things that will endure. And he's talking about how our approach on this one will illuminate what's inside of us and how we perceive the work of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven breaking into this world all around us. Could we receive that invitation and begin even this week in noticing, in savoring the generosity of God? Would you pray with me? Creator God, we just stop and acknowledge that there are times we miss out on your activity. God, from the chairs that are holding our bodies up to the breath in our lungs, you are generous and generative in nature, and we long that you would make us more like you. Would you give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see how you're at work? Would you give us the faithful attentiveness to what you're up to? Would you give us the courage to respond with generosity? Help us to savor your goodness this week. Jesus, we love you and we thank you and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for engaging our teaching with us as we continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in the world. At DCC, we believe that taking care of our emotional and mental health is just as important as taking care of our physical bodies. If you're experiencing stress, anxiety, depression, or another mental health concern, please don't feel you need to carry that alone. 
let someone know, a friend, family member, one of DCC's pastors, or your counselor. We have various resources on our website, and you can always get in touch with us at info at denverchurch.org. To stay connected with all that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email or download our DCC app. Again, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. It is always great to be together. Thank you.